Hello, Scuttlebutt listeners. I am William, and I'm here today to introduce to you a new segment that we're having for MCA Scuttlebutt. It is called World of Wargaming, and this is in line with the 2019 Commandant's Planning Guidance to really uh, fill the greatest deficiency in the training and education of our leaders, practice and decision-making against a thinking enemy, a.k.a. Wargaming. So, as the introductory... Uh, segment to World of Wargaming, I have here Colonel Tim Barrick, Director of the Wargaming, uh, sorry, Director of Wargaming at the Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare. Tim, how are you doing? Great, William. Great to be here today. Awesome. Good to have you. So just for those who don't know you, can you just uh, briefly uh, give some background information, where you're from, how you got in the Marine Corps, where you've been, and how did you get here today? Yeah, so I did 29 years in the Marine Corps, uh, retired last year, uh, grew up all over the United States, also was a missionary kid in, in Bangladesh. Uh, Wargaming for me started with my older brother, Nate. Uh, he's three years older than I am, and when I was in elementary school, we were, we were doing wargaming back then. And so it's been a lifelong hobby for me and uh, kind of a passion as, as, a, as a hobby effort on the side. And then obviously through time in the Marine Corps, have had a number of opportunities over the year to, to years to do wargaming. And most recently, my last tour in the Marine Corps was at the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab and had the opportunity to be the Wargaming Director there doing force design wargaming. And, and even before that, doing a lot of uh, professional military education-related uh, gaming-type activities at the Marine Corps Tactics and Operations Group when I was commanding officer. And also back in from 07 to 10 was the operations officer there when we stood that organization up. So uh, a lot of activities over the years with, with wargaming from both a personal standpoint and also professional standpoint with the Marine Corps. Awesome. So as someone who, uh, myself for our audience, I, I love personally love uh, historical wargaming. I love figuring out how other people who are interested really got into it. It's also, I've noticed, at an incredibly young age. So you mentioned you said you were six when you started. So what, what series, what, um, what, what, what really grasps it, uh, the interest of wargaming for you? Well, the first game that I remember playing was a old hex encounter war game called Victory in the Pacific, and and then we jumped from that into Tactics Two, Squad Leader, Third Reich, some of the classic war games from the the 80s and and even 70s really. And uh, for me, it was just a real interest in military history. You know, at the time, I mean, typical typical young boy interested in warfare in the military and and my my brother was very passionate about wargaming and and you know as being three years older than me he was highly influential on the the games that we did it was really his passion for it that then you know rubbed off on me and uh, and you know caught me along and then I would say books had a lot to do with it right reading things like Red Storm Rising you know some of the uh, the sailing ship uh, you know, Historical fiction, uh, Richard Blytho's series is one uh, book called To Glory We Steer was about a, a midshipman on a frigate back in back in the, the age of sail, right? And so that really got me, you know, interested in, in the history aspect of it. And then there was a war game called Wooden Ships and Iron Men that really then took that and gave an opportunity to play it out uh, and live those decisions, right, in a war game environment. So for me, that's been, you know, putting yourself in the shoes of those historical leaders and characters and, and the decisions that they faced, I think for me, has always been a fascinating part of wargaming, right? That that makes it like live action history, that you're you're reliving those decisions and appreciating the, the factors that went into at least some of their decisions. And war games don't obviously give you a full replication of what happened, but at least from the geography, and some of the forces involved, orders of battle, it, it helps you appreciate, um, you know, those factors. The human factors, right, what it was actually like to be there, that obviously game doesn't give you that, but, but at least it helps you appreciate some of the decision-making and what went into it. And it's also, I feel like, a good way to passively learn history on the side because especially for some of the more historical ones, you learn about the command structures and then and which, you know, what commander went where to which battle, who, were, who was successful, who was not successful, which units uh, were able to be known as like crack regiments or, or, or good fighters versus like poorly trained ones and poorly tricked ones. And you just really, it's, it's it, like I said, when you, when you supplement that with books, 
documentaries, etc. You really have a, a whole a more holistic uh, uh, idea of uh, of the situation historically. So you started off with some uh, some board gaming in your childhood. Uh, what did, what did war gaming look like when you joined the Marine Corps? Mostly tactical decision games was really the central piece of war gaming. I, I came in, I graduated from the Naval Academy in '92, and so really entered the, the operating forces at the time in '93. By the time I got through through schools, going through uh, tank school as a tanker uh, at Fort Knox, we had sand table. Uh, you know, problems that we would do with the micro armor and put you in that decision as a platoon commander with the micro armor on the board and would ask you, okay, what are you going to do here? And you would step through, we would study the doctrinal pubs, look at all the different procedures for like establishing a defense or if you're going to do offensive operations, what you would do. And then we would be asked to actually with the micro armor, step through and talk through those procedures all the way through. And then they would pop up an engagement and you would have to respond to it and tell them what your decision was, and then they would kind of adjudicate that and you move on to the next step. So that was from like an MOS school uh, standpoint. And then when I got in the operating forces, it was it was the tactical decision games. Uh, you know, we had micro armor there as well, the Marine Corps Tac War series that uh, that we had back then that were in a bunch of bunch of boxes and cases of just tons of really high quality micro armor. Uh, organized and everyone with their own little case. It was my first assignment when I checked into the battalion uh, while I was waiting for a tank platoon was to go organize all the, the tack war boxes and start to utilize and learn this 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 rather complex system and and try to run some events and was only marginally successful in that. You know, the schedule just got in the way and, and uh, the, the complexity of that system w was part of the challenge of why it never really took full hold in the Marine Corps. But that was some of the early experiences with it. And then I would say, you know, the command post exercises like you do with simulations, while they're not necessarily war games per se in some of the traditional interpretation of what a war game is, some of the best experiences I had as a lieutenant from just wrestling with decision-making was in simulators, right? Of head-to-head, -head, force on force, where you're in a tank simulator as part of a battalion and it's all being manned by people and you're going up against, uh, against human opponents in a, in a virtual world environment. Uh, that was SimNet at Fort Knox was phenomenal, right? I mean, that was that was really great. What I would consider an aspect, you know, one different type of wargaming that we did. It's more of a training kind of environment exercise, but at the same time, it's that force on force, immersed in live action, the decisions are similar. Um, and that was some of the best training I ever did was that simulation training. So you have a good experiences through your career of doing um, both uh, what I would call like historical wargaming and uh, more like contemporary wargaming. And as noted in the Marine Corps Gazette in several articles, like a good understanding of, uh, sorry, a good way to teach military, professional military education is combining both, you know, knowledge of history with knowledge of modern equipment and, uh, and how to use it and apply it in combat. Uh, what is, I guess, the, 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 the strengths and, and the pros and cons of historical wargaming versus more contemporary or futuristic wargaming? Yeah, so you can learn you know, the principles of war, you can, you can appreciate the nuances of combat and some of the basic tactics and decisions through any period of history, right? That, that you're put in a situation where you have to identify, okay, what must you do militarily to accomplish your objective? And then deciding in how you're arranging your forces how you're using and gonna leverage the terrain. Uh, what do you wait as your main effort? What do you see as uh, the way in which you achieve success? Some people call it the defeat mechanism, right? You, you have to wrestle with that. Those basic kind of tactical decisions, you have to wrestle with that no matter what period of history you're looking at, right? So from a education standpoint, just in understanding the art of war, you don't need to confine wargaming in 
in our professional schoolhouses to contemporary frameworks. You can leverage any period of history to do that. And there's value in understanding the evolution of warfare over time so that you understand and appreciate innovation, adaptation, and how that's occurred through history, that, that you, it's never static, right? That warfare never really arrives at a, at a period of stasis where it's the exact same weapon systems and capabilities and tactics. Uh, to some degree, there's always some adaptation occurring. And then that just reinforces in our minds that today when we're fighting and we're thinking about the future, that, hey, here's, here's historical examples that have been burned into our minds that become reference points that we can have a conversation about as professionals and and quickly arrive at a common understanding of a problem right if if, if we're all talking the same you know scenarios and histories that uh, hey what about you know this that happened at gallipoli or this that happened with korea you know it, it's a way to communicate and achieve very quick understanding of concepts that we're trying to achieve or or war fighting approaches when we've all kind of studied those same battles through history and then have those reinforced through wargaming. So, so when you're in professional military education, it opens up the whole span of history uh, for wargaming. Now, that said, we must, in PME, address wargaming today because it would be um, – just irresponsible of us from a from a faculty standpoint to not put our students in the situation and circumstances of today and in the near future so that they are forced to learn the capabilities and the tactics of what we would face today so that has to be i think a core part of our curriculum the scenarios the the war games that we do so while we can open up the span of all military history within our, our curriculum, uh, we must also put the students in the circumstances of today because you have to understand the weapon systems and the capabilities in order to properly craft uh, the tactics and how to employ them, right? And wrestling with future warfighting concepts to deal with, with drones, electromagnetic spectrum, uh, the different uh, weapon systems that are out there an adversary may throw out you, you have to be immersed in that and understand it. So we would be remiss not to address that in our schoolhouses. So I think it is an important combination where we're addressing wargaming requirements of today and the near future and taking opportunities to take selective battles and wars from history and choose those to inject into the curriculum as well. And there's there's so many to choose from, so that's that's the hard problem is which ones do you choose, right? So how specifically do you at the uh, the uh, Krulak Center uh, use uh, wargaming as a teaching tool? Like, how, how does that curriculum look like? So just to be clear on the role of the Krulak Center within Marine Corps University writ large, so the, the Krulak Center provides general support across all of the schools that are part of Marine Corps University. So uh, College of Enlisted Military Education, Expeditionary Warfare School, Command and Staff College, School of Advanced Warfighting, Marine Corps War College, uh, the, the College of Distance Education Training. So all of those are the schools within the broader Marine Corps University uh, umbrella. So the, the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare does a lot of things with, with wargaming being one of, the, one of those pillars that, of support that we provide to the schools. So what we provide is the, the ability for schools to leverage wargaming as part of their curriculum, uh, leveraging some of our, our planning support and bringing some of the capabilities, like we have a new wargaming cloud capability that we've just stood up this fall uh, that we can definitely talk more about, um, that the schools can tap into and leverage, and we help enable that. So this is really in the last year has been the stand-up of this wargaming capability within the Krulak Center. So this is, this is new. Now, before this, a lot of people were doing a lot of great things for wargaming. Um, Dr. Ben Jensen, Dr. Jim Lacey, uh, you know, Major Ian Brown, and a bunch of others across Marine Corps University on their own initiative and with their own skills and expertise have brought wargaming to those courses and to the schools. But now the Marine Corps University has a full-time 
war game staff. We're still small. Uh, you know, we've got we've got me, and then we've got a couple contractors. Uh, I've got uh, a, you know Captain Ben Herbold supporting uh, from within the Krulak Center in a near full time capacity. Uh, he's doing a bunch of other things as well. So we're growing, and we'll continue to grow with some more contract support. So bottom line is, we do war gaming for the schools both directly in support of their curriculum. When they come and ask for help and say, hey, we've got this, this game we want to run. Uh, here's how we're thinking of executing it. What can you do to help? Um, we do quite a few of those over the span of a year for the schools. And then additionally, we do extracurricular wargaming through fight club activities. So, for example, right now we have our first big tournament of the year that's just kicked off where we've got a a war game tournament using a commercial war game called Order of Battle World War II. Uh, we've got 32 players in the tournament from across the schools, both students and faculty, and and we've put that together and enabled it. Uh, I like to refer to it as like intramural sports for the university. That uh, you know the schools have their core curriculum program, and then we're offering through some of these tournament and fight club activities, war gaming as like an intramural sport for students and faculty to get more reps and sets in in wargaming and decision making that's awesome so yeah tell me about this wargaming cloud that that you brought up so first off i have to give credit to the resourcing by the marine corps senior leaders without the money going against specifically wargaming um, a lot of what we're talking about here would not be possible so the wargaming cloud does does cost money and requires resources put against it and uh, because the commandant put a stake in the ground with respect to wargaming and from a budgetary standpoint put money against wargaming and PME, it has opened up a lot of possibilities, this cloud capability being one of those. It's been in development for uh, the last two years and shaping the contract side. Uh, Microsoft Azure Cloud is the, the basic cloud framework for this. And it's taken us a while just to get this through all the contracting policies and then setting up the architecture for it. And we're finally at that point where we did the ribbon cutting ceremony in mid-September to you know, basically declare initial operating capability for this cloud. And what it has in it right now are seven uh, commercial war games that uh, we've chosen as just off-the-shelf war game capabilities to put in the cloud as an initial start on a war game library that's available to students and faculty, and we've got a licensing framework that allows us for the resident courses to uh, offer this capability for them. And, and that's just, I say the resident courses deliberately because the population we're talking about for the resident programs is about 600 between the faculty and students is roughly around 600. When we make a step to expand this capability for the College of Distance Education and Training, that's that's a population of over 20,000. So it's orders of magnitude different in terms of the scope of the requirement, the data usage that would be put on the cloud, uh, the licensing framework that would go with the games that are in the cloud. It's orders of magnitude different. So what we've done right now with this cloud as, as a proof of concept is it is targeting the resident course students and faculty to create the opportunity for them to, to go into this cloud. They all have the same game library when they, when they open up that virtual desktop. They've got those games listed there, and it's an opportunity to play the games. Right now, our main effort is through the Fight Club set of activities to open up this as an opportunity for students and faculty to play these games. And on a selective basis, uh, where we have a couple of events that the schools have already identified that they know they want a digital war game solution for those events. EWS had one that they've already done with their Dominion Advanced scenario uh, that we used the cloud with uh, Flashpoint campaigns was the specific war game that we used, which is a, a tactical level, uh, you know, ground combat focused uh, computer game that we use for Dominion Advance. And then Command and Staff College does their capstone war game at the end of the year using command pe ews has another event in march that they use it for and then uh, school advanced warfighting is using uh, various games in the cloud uh, on a number of circumstances in a in a more decentralized manner particularly empowering students to leverage these to support some of their research projects and stuff like that so 
we're using it broadly across the schools. And I know once we stand up a particularly a, a another game, set of games that we're going to add to the cloud, um, you know, the, the Marine Corps War College is going to be adding those to its portfolio as well. And in addition to piling on to the, the tournaments and extracurricular activities that we're doing with it. So uh, it's, it's going to be an exciting road ahead because we are just starting to you know, recognize and see the opportunities that, that we're going to be able to use this cloud for in terms of, you know, getting the faculty educated in terms of here's, here's what the cloud can do and for them to make the recognition of how they can, they can take advantage of it to support their learning outcomes that they're trying to achieve in the schools. And I see that going hand in hand with the Fight Club activities that we're doing that are extracurricular, right? So, so we've really got two pathways here as we go forward. It's, it's what each individual school is doing from a wargaming standpoint and how they're leveraging the cloud to support it and then what we're doing from a fight club standpoint. And I also want to emphasize that I, I always tell people I'm an equal opportunity wargamer. I like computer games and I think that they offer tremendous value and, and we absolutely should be leveraging the, the strengths of what a computer game can do for, for individual gameplay, for collective gameplay. Uh, they obviously bring a powerful capability to wargaming. What sometimes gets missed, though, and I think is something that, that may honestly, in the history of wargaming, the, the advent of the computer-based games may have actually caused us, in some respects, to take a step back from our understanding of wargaming because there was a natural uh, progression in our, in our perspective on wargaming that once, once computer wargames started to manifest themselves, like particularly in the 90s, right, that that, that was the future of wargaming. And if you weren't doing a computer game, you, you weren't current, right, and cutting edge. And, and I think that a lot of people dismissed the value of the tabletop game. And what, what, what we're really uh, learning and, and coming to grips with now is just recognizing that when you contrast the two methodologies, the human aspects of interacting with someone over a map, you get the counters on the map, they're arrayed, and, and the dialogue that goes on around a map is, is different than the dialogue that occurs if we pull up a computer screen and we're having a conversation about what to do. How we assimilate information off of a computer screen is different than how we assimilate information coming off of a map that's on the tabletop in front of us. So there is a dynamic that occurs when you put a bunch of students around a tabletop that is a, is a bit different than when you put them all in a computer game. And I think that's an important nuance that I'm not saying one is right over the other. I'm saying they both add value. No, that's fair because when you're doing tabletop gaming, you can almost like see your enemy's OODA loop happening by their facial expressions, how they're acting. And then over a computer, you can't really get that. There's actually been some games where I played where I, I'm thinking I'm getting my butt kicked, and then I, I, you know, I'll either concede or we'll call it a draw. He's like, "Yeah, well, I, you were, you had me on the ropes too. I thought you were gonna win this." So you, you it has, to, it makes you think differently about how to penetrate your your opponent's mind when when uh, when doing that. Uh, so, we're, as you, as we said, wargaming is a valuable tool, but there's also the ethical and moral aspect of it that can either be emphasized or missed depending on the game. How how do you uh, handle, I guess, those ethical implications uh, in, in wargaming when considering, for instance, um, in some wargaming I would do from the Napoleonic or Civil War era, I learned that, you know, to, to win sometimes you could or leverage the points to your to your benefit. You can almost use like small cavalry units as, as scud missiles or kamikaze units to take out artillery, where realistically, if you did that, I'd have a lot of angry people, commanders, wives writing to me saying, what, why did you do that? Um, and also considering also, especially in modern day scenarios, uh, civilian presence on the battlefields. How do you, how, uh, do you think that is a, is it being handled well, those moral questions or B, um, how, how is it being handled if it is? Yeah, that, that's a great topic. And I think it's one that warrants, you know, constant examination because we absolutely have room for improvement in that regard, particularly the, the role in war games of like the civilian populace. Most war games that are commercial off the shelf that you put on the table, and, and, and a lot of them that are in the military that are, that are designed in government, you know, don't, 
don't have populations as part of the counter set that goes on the map. So, you know, you see a city on a map and it's marked on the map and then you have your counter set that's the military order of battle. And the population is quite often in abstentia on the map, right? But the reality is, is the population is there and is a significant, uh, you know, factor in the planning and, and what happens uh, in the course of the, the war and how you factor that in. So it goes, goes right to your question. I would say right now we, we address it in certain game formats, but it's something that we absolutely can and need to improve upon because it's not baked in sufficiently. And I think it's, it's relatively easy to do it in some forms, but, but then uh, it really becomes an incumbent upon whoever's running the game uh, to to pose the questions to to do the adjudication and also to put the players on the spot when a player is starting to game the game because some of what you talked about is the decision making where a player may see an opportunity from a rule set to to do something that creates advantage that may not be realistic right and in that case you've identified perhaps a flaw in the game where you're breaking the game right so you can avoid that through game facilitation where you basically call people out and say, look, you're not going to do that. That's not, that's not you know, a real tactic that you would employ in the battle space. You're just doing that because of the game system's allowing you to do it to create advantage. So I think that's incumbent upon a facilitator to just keep people in check when they're trying to do something that is, that is uh, just a factor of what the rules allow you to do in the game. And so I think that's where, from a facilitation standpoint, Additionally, if, if you have already a set that like population factors is something you want to address with the game as a learning point, then you need to, as the facilitator, you know, pose those questions. If there's game, are, are, is there a game component that you can create and put in the game that allows you to help, you know, bring that issue to the fore? Or is it a more of a mission or scenario framework that you put on there? So I think asking the right questions up front in the game design effort as you're going into it and then during the game execution, you know, honing in on those to get after those topics. And, you know, game methodology from a PME standpoint, you know, can be slightly different from entertainment and hobby wargaming in the, in the sense that you may be specifically doing breakouts and focused on a specific question or problem or, or a vignette that you're doing, you're, you're causing, you know, you're calling a pause in the game in the other respects, and you're saying, look, we're going to stop play right here, and we're going to focus on this aspect for, you know, you to wrestle with this problem, and then we're going to go back and jump in the game and continue on in this respect. So there's a lot of ways to get after this problem set, and through creative design, you can do it. Um, time in the game becomes a challenge because anytime you're, you're stopping – and focusing on that kind of thing, that's the clock's ticking. So how much time do you devote to that? And is that the specific focus and purpose of the game? Or are you trying to capture you know, the whole spectrum of aspects of conflict? So this is the challenges and the art of game design when it comes to education, is, is it really needs to focus in on what is your learning outcome you're trying to achieve? And from a curriculum standpoint, how is the war game supporting that? And then you make sure that the war game has those elements that achieve that learning outcome. So if it's not there in the game, it may be because it was never articulated as, a, as an objective for the game to achieve. So for our listeners who, who might be like in tune to this sort of thing, we've actually seen wargaming get into the, uh, the, the, the uh, popular media in terms of on the news. For instance, you've seen articles recently, especially given the situation with Russia and uh, China and Taiwan, et cetera. Of, of wargaming where you see on the headlines like the United States military gets wiped out in wargaming or, you know, Chi United States beats China in wargaming over Taiwan with heavy costs. Um, to what extent is, is that, uh, and then you'll, you'll consequently have pundits on either side political spectrum be like, oh, this is a sign that American military is a decline or China's on the rise, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, how do those actually look in, in from the more behind the scenes uh, are those good indicators of, you know, of is is the American military screwed or is it just like we're learning valuable lessons along the way, or is it the you know that the opponents that we have we we increase their capabilities to make the, the challenge harder for the United States player like what are those sort of things uh, looking like behind the scenes? 
Well, you just opened up Pandora's box there with that one. So that's uh, that is a a very tough challenge, right? Because you're talking about the the crystal ball where you're trying to use that crystal ball of looking into the future and going, okay, what's going to happen here, right? With with these forces, with these warfighting concepts, what's the outcome? So first off, it, it's you know, we, we always say about games that they're always wrong in some degree, right? And it's important to know as you're going in the game as much as possible what, uh, what those parameters are that you're putting on the game and understanding some of the key assumptions that, that go into the, the scenario that you're building and running. And when it comes to the threat and you're, you're trying to play threat forces – there's a number of key decisions you have to do up front. You know, what, what's the purpose of the game and what are you looking for? How are you looking for Red to conduct themselves? Are they, you want them to model their decisions and behavior as closely to how we think they're going to act in the future? Or do you want them to present us with the hardest challenge possible? And if they have the capability to do it, then then go ahead and use that capability or or do you really look at intent and is that going to be part of their strategy? So there's a lot of different ways to look at it and you're trying to get inside the mind of a potential adversary and try to predict what their decision making is. And we, we definitely don't always get that right. And that's it's hard to get right. How do you know, right? I mean, they're, they're human and we're trying to transplant ourselves into a future scenario with a whole lot of hypotheticals around it. So it's impossible to predict exactly what they're going to do. Now, that said, when you're looking at the forces being employed, there's a decision you have to make in the scenario design up front that, that we call like a red high or a red low, right? Or as you look at the pathway of military development and capabilities, let's, let's just say China's you know, hypothetically jumping out to like 2030. So where are they going to be with their forces in the year 2030? And there's – Analytic projections that are that are thought, okay, they may be here. Like, let's just look at numbers of ships, right? How many of a certain type of ship are they going to have by 2030? Well, that's a that's a best guess based on the analytic information we know. And you can guess on the high end and say, well, it's going to be this number that, let's just say, 20. And then you've got a low end that might be 10. And then you've got to decide for your game, how are you playing red? Are you playing them red high or are you playing them red low? And then you got to do the same thing for the blue force. Are you playing blue force high and blue force low? And as you do that projection, what are those assumptions as you frame the game? And then it goes to the strategy that's being employed in the game. Uh, what kind of strategy do you want red to play? What kind of strategy does blue play? And then how do those interact? So it's really tough when, when you see these, these articles that write about, well, this is what happened in the game. You know, the questions that pop into my mind was, okay, well, did you play red high, red low? Did you play them aggressively? Did you play them conservatively? You know, what were their strategic objectives that they were trying to do? What, what, was, what was happening in the game? There's so many questions there that need answered. And then who was playing red and who was playing blue in terms of their approach, right? So there's so much there that you can unpack. And if you do it right, you can learn a lot. As long as you frame the game and saying, okay, given these conditions – Here's what the potential or possible outcome was as played in the game. So it's important to caveat it. You can't just make these arbitrary judgments of, well, th this happened in the game and therefore it must be so. Well, why did it happen in the game and what were the assumptions that went into the design and into the gameplay that achieved that outcome? Oh, good answer. Appreciate that. So uh, my, my, my fears have been massaged a bit. I appreciate that. Um, so uh, you've, uh, in your... Uh, Bio, you mentioned that you're an expert at the tactical operation, and operational and strategic levels of wargaming. For Marine listeners who want to get their sets and reps in, is there any titles or series that you recommend for each level uh, of warfare so that they can start getting those uh, experience in? Yeah, there's a wide range there, and I'll, I'll kind of open the aperture on this as well to this discussion of historical wargaming that we've talked about and the role that historical war games play. So when you're diving in at the tactical level, there's value in jumping into a lot of the historical war games that are out there and playing whatever level, right? Strategic, operational, tactical. Um, but that can't be the sole place for your gaming, especially as, as military professionals that, that are 
that are on active duty today, if you're trying to, you know, get those reps and sets in wargaming, then you want to put yourself in the in the position of today, and especially employing Marine Corps forces, right, in in a contemporary environment. So here's the challenge that is before us. So there there are a ton of historical war game options that are on the market that are available to, to play. The number of options, if you want to play, for example, a Marine Expeditionary Unit today, the number of options out there on the market is like, you know, very, very slim, right? And so, and then there's, you got the mix of tabletop and computer games. And then I also want to throw in a another kind of, uh, category of games, and that's your sci-fi fantasy games, okay? Because there's also a role there, right? Because you're you're creating these hypothetical situations with these often, well, you know, fictional capabilities, and then you're wrestling with, well, how would you employ that, right? And that's stimulating the imagination to think of, well, here's what's in the art of the possible, and it gets back to basic strategy, tactics, etc. So, so there's a world of science fiction and fantasy war game environments out there, which also, by the way, um, is of high interest to uh, many of the Marines out there. They, 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 they are interested in that world, right? And you can learn things from that in basic war fighting uh, skills. So, so there's, there's really these multiple genres of games that, that I would contend they all have, to some degree or another, generally speaking, uh, value that can contribute. So to your specific question then, as we look at, like, particularly the contemporary environment war games, um, from a computer standpoint, I, I would advocate some of the ones that we've put in our cloud. Uh, for example, Flashpoint Campaigns, and in the, in there's a new release that I'm super excited about that's coming, uh, which, by the way, uh, in this podcast, I'm... I'm speaking as Tim Barrick here and, and not necessarily saying this is the position of the Marine Corps here as I articulate some of these viewpoints and opinions. But, you know, there are some there are some great games on the horizon, some that are some that are new and emerging and uh, that that I think are going to offer huge value. So Flashpoint Campaigns has been around for a while. It is a brigade and below computer war game. And the units that you're maneuvering on the map are typically platoons and companies. Now, it is centered on full the gap. Germany is the commercial war game is very much a 1980s Cold War model. That said, there's a lot of the capabilities that were employed in the 80s in the battlefield that are still relevant today. Uh, however, what we've done is a very customizable game. And so we've got a, a customized version of it where we've adapted it to, to have contemporary Marine Corps units in the game and then southern storm is a new expansion i'm excited about i haven't played it yet but it's coming very very soon and has got a lot of new features in it that i think are, are going to be well worth um you know getting into so that one is one i look forward to having in the cloud and i see it definitely as a place in the portfolio of games from a military professional standpoint of uh, of playing that and that that kind of hits at that company to brigade regiment level uh, game. Uh, Command Modern Operations is a more sophisticated computer game, but it really gets into naval and air combat. And it is one that that really, if you want to learn the platforms and capabilities, uh, you know, both U.S. and Chinese uh, ship systems, aircraft, missile systems, etc., you're going to get a deep dive into all those, you know, multiple variants of the Luyang DDG you know, the Renhai and Jankai's, and you're going to get exposure to uh, the different aircraft platforms, what kind of missions they execute, what's their loadouts. When you play that game, you know, a, a tutorial that I that I ran last year for Expeditionary Warfare School had, uh, you know, what we did is just gave them, here. here's an LHD, here's your squadron, your composite squadron on the LHD, and your mission is to go through and ensure sea control through the Bottle Man Dead Strait, right? That's your... That's your mission, and and then they would have to go in and generate their mission loadouts for their aircraft, would put them on station and would guide their employment, and it, it would immerse them right there in the role of that squadron on LHD, and 
and how you're going to use it to accomplish a specific task. And then you can you can do like a, a whole new loadout across across the ship. So it, it creates a great opportunity. In, it's one of the few games that you can actually take the opportunity of taking a Marine Expeditionary Unit and, and putting it in the game and fighting it at least to a degree. The land warfare system they're working on, but uh, uh, it's improving. And the Marine Corps has actually been working with them in the professional edition of an amphibious module to that. So you can actually get into building a landing plan and having it executed in a game. So, so that's, uh, that's one uh, on the computer side as well. And then when you get to you know, World War II, there's a whole world of games that open up for, for tactical, operational, and strategic uh, war plans, strategic command. Um, you know, Battle Academy at the tactical level is a great one for getting down into like individual tanks and squads and maneuvering those on the, on the battlefield. So Battle Academy has a couple of game expansions there. Um, hitting some of the other publishers out there, you've got uh, um, Microprose just put out regiments. Uh, you've got which is a which is a regiment level um, high high you know graphics on it or you know look great and in, you know kind of virtual sim. It's one of these battle simulators of arraying forces and going head to head, right? Uh, with with a modernized army kind of uh, battle battle set. So. There's a lot there. That's kind of the, some of the ones from the computer world. When you go to the tabletop realm, on the commercial side, there's there's just a lot. I mean, it, the more sophisticated contemporary, you've got the Next War series. There's a South China Sea game that Compass, Compass Games puts out. Um, and then you've got a World at War 1985 is kind of a, a tactical platoon level tabletop game that's pretty popular. And of course, World War II, you've got squad leader, um, and there's just a, a bunch there at the at the tactical level and all levels of, of fighting for World War II. So that's that's a quick quick snapshot. I mean, we could talk all day about the the number of gaming options that are out there, uh, but that's kind of a glimpse into some of the ones that we're we're looking at or leveraging. Awesome. So as we're as we're winding down the interview, uh, where can our readers? Uh uh, sorry, not readers. Listeners find you. Do you have any like uh, pending articles or anywhere you you uh, you, uh, you post writings or? So I uh, had a number of publications over this last year. Uh, we did uh, so back to the game tools. One of the game systems that, that that the Marine Corps has developed is the operational war game system. Uh, that was a game that we developed when I was at the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab as the game director there and the design team, you know, did the initial design work on the operational war game system. And then since I got taken on at Marine Corps University, have continued to, to champion that and, and develop expansions for that game system. So this is an operational level war game that, uh, you know, the units are battalion level, capital ships, squadrons. And early in the year, we, uh, we had a uh, Ukraine expansion built just before the war kicked off, and I uh, have an article in War on the Rocks with uh, with uh, Dr. Jim Lacey and my brother Nate uh, Barrick, who's a strategist at uh, Special Operations Command, and and also a, as I mentioned earlier, a very very avid war gamer. And uh, and there's been a couple articles that we've done, um, uh, one with Modern War Institute up at West Point, and then one with uh, War on the Rocks relative to uh, that Ukraine uh, war. And then we've got a number of articles that have come out in the Gazette on wargaming and Marine Corps University. And, um, you know, Mastering the Art of War was one that, that came out here recently that, uh, that I wrote that really got at a key point that I wanted to make in that, in that article was this idea that you have to understand capabilities and weapon systems in order to be a, an effective practitioner in the art of war, especially today. If, if you don't know the capabilities of your adversary and you don't know some of your own capabilities, how do you know when you're at risk? You know, so wargaming and a lot of the decision-making, particularly for commanders and decision-makers, is about risk decisions. How much risk are you willing to accept for your force to accomplish the mission, right? Does the mission warrant you putting your force at risk? That is a decision calculus that is the realm of the commander. And only the commander can really make that decision in consultation with, with you know, his or her bosses up the chain 
and helping them understand, hey, if you ask me to do this mission, here's the level of risk that, that I will have to assume in order to accomplish this mission. That is a crucial decision, probably the most important decision that a commander makes, right? So, you know, that, that kind of decision-making is central to wargaming and is, is key to the, the learning that occurs. And this operational wargame system, I think, really helps the players understand some of these capabilities, understand the risks and threats that are posed when, when you're playing the game, and, and they get immersed in that and learn those, learn those capabilities. So, so that is another one that, that is um, on the professional side, you know, through the military, through Marine Corps University, you know, those listeners that are out there that, that want to get, uh, get that game, if you're in the Marine Corps and in those units, that's something, you know, reach out to me and, and you know, we'll try to get that game in your hands. And then there's the commercial games we've talked about, uh, you know, Sebastian Bay's Littoral Commander is one that, uh, uh, you know, I should have mentioned even earlier that's being used a lot and it gets after a Marine Littoral Regiment and, and what it's, you know, wrestling with the ideas of how to employ that force. So, um. Awesome, thank you. So as a ceremonial final question, I'm going to ask for our Wargaming series. You're home, you're going to pour yourself a drink, put your slippers on. What Wargaming are you playing? What's, what's your highly most fun, most enjoyable, most educational Wargaming game that you, will, that you recommend to anyone? Tough question. Um, I... From a computer war game standpoint, I, I think my my hands down favorite right now, and and my lens evolves as new games come out, right? But right now, I'd say the one that I enjoy the most is Warplan. That is a World War II kind of high operational war game. Uh, it puts you in command of of the theater, so you're you've got the European theater, and you're playing either the a Allies or the Axis, and you're making those big decisions about campaigning you know what what is your next objective and then as you look deep in your in your horizon there you're looking you're making decisions such as the production decisions of what kind of military force do you need a year from now because you're making decisions on your ship building your aircraft production your your tank production so just as an example of the kind of decisions that that you're in in war plan you know, I put myself in the the role of the Germans in that, and you you complete the the conquest of of Poland, and then you're faced with okay, what do you do next? Do you go historical, and you're kind of in this op pause until the spring of 1940, and and then in late spring 1940, you're going to invade France, or do you do something ahistorical and do something different? Right. So you have that tough decision, and some of the factors that I was wrestling with in that role is you're dealing with the weather. It's wintertime. And in that game, weather is a cost imposition on you. I mean, it, you're trying to do things in bad weather that, it, that are extremely challenging. It's tough to wage a campaign in the middle of a snowstorm, right? And that game makes that become a reality. It's really tough to do that. And then I had a Panzer Corps that was going to be delivered on X date in the spring. So was I going to kick my campaign early before I had the delivery of this new Panzer Corps uh, and, and also risk the weather implications of doing that? Or was I going to wait till the better weather and wait till the Panzer Corps got delivered before kicking off this campaign in the West? So I just, I'm fascinated by those kinds of decisions and think that that, that campaigning and what goes into, hey, what's your next objective? And when are you going to go after that objective? And what kind of resources do you need to go after it? Uh, I would say another one that is a close parallel is, is strategic command. And when you're doing technology investments and you're faced with a situation, uh, like in strategic command, a situation that I loved in playing that one in the Pacific, was I had modernized my fleet, but you have to go to port for the ship to get the upgrade, right? It's got to get the refit in port and get like the next class of radar, et cetera, right? You've got to go back to port. Well, I was in the offense with my fleet and at a point of wrestling with, have I culminated in my offense in this naval offensive um, and I've got the Japanese on the ropes here, 
do I do I stop the offensive and go back to port to get the refit because then I'm going to come back even better? But that's going to take me offline for like two months, right? Or do I continue to press the offensive with the risk here that that my adversary is going to be doing those refits in port and then it's going to come back out and and be the more modernized force and up against me? So I was wrestling with that culminating point of the offense from a naval warfare standpoint and wrestling with that decision of do I go back and refit the force. So I, I personally enjoy the operational level of war a lot in, in a wargaming sense of of these kinds of decisions of campaigning, uh, I personally find very enjoyable. So when, I, when I've got a go-to that I wanna do from a, from a hobby war game standpoint, you know, war plan, war plan is one, I'd say strategic command is another, just because it hits that, that, that level. And those are computer games, so they're easy to flip the on switch and the setup's really easy. From a board game standpoint, I'd say it's really tough to put my finger on one specific board game because I like uh, the Napoleonic uh, set of games. The Labatai series gets into very detailed, immersive Napoleonic warfare. The com game components are tremendous. The counters are, uh, are, the artwork is fantastic. It's colored in such a way to match the uniforms of the time period. Oh, that's really cool. You know, so you've got your different units where you can see the coloring on the counter and sometimes it even looks like, you know, like the the, the crisscross, uh, you know, belts across the chest and things like that are on the counter. And then the map artwork on most of the Labatai games is just fantastic. Some of the best maps I've seen, the Dresden game, the Waterloo uh, game, all fantastic artwork and game components. And, and I like that immersive feel of those games. And then some of their new command and control rules that they've put into that are fantastic with a Chitra system where you've got certain number of headquarters with, with uh, your leaders and, and the command radius of those, and you've got to keep your units in that command radius to get that activation, and you're doing that chit pull activation for it, so you don't know if you've got all these uh, units on the map, you know, what the exact game sequence is going to be as, as your fight unfolds. So uh, I, I, I'm always, uh, I, I don't get that game, that set of games on the table enough. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really great. And then the World at War one I mentioned earlier, um, that's one I'm excited to dive more into because again, game components, the, the quality of the components matters a lot in the artwork and, and everything. And, and it's got a, a, a great looking system and, um, and and I'm excited to get that one, that one on the table here. Uh, so those are some of the go-tos. When I was growing up, Wooden Ships and Iron Men, Squad Leader, Third Reich, awesome. those three. That was that was like the bread and butter of war gaming. Uh, and so those are classics that uh, I've got probably hundreds of hours invested in those games. Awesome. Well, Tim, I appreciate you coming in here and uh, talking war gaming with us. For our listeners, we have a new, relatively new war gaming portal on the Marine Corps Association website where I will rep re uh, repeatedly update and add additional recommended war games. And I think, you know, Tim here has given us a a enough material where we'll do an update soon. So please go check that out and uh, start gaming, get those reps and sets in. Well, Tim, again, thanks for coming in. Uh, wish you best and uh, hope to have you on soon. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks, William. All right. Bye, y'all. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding. But you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC Retired, Nancy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.